last couple of weeks, we have been talking about and being helped on the topic of suffering from the book of James. Typically, when we think about suffering, we think of the things that happen suddenly, the things that happen unexpectedly, um, the sickness, the car accident, the, the layoff at work, the things that we don't necessarily plan for. We don't, we don't put it on the calendar. There isn't some pop-up notification that says suffering in an hour. It comes upon us. But the truth is the New Testament actually talks a great deal about the expectation of Christians for suffering for Jesus Christ. There's a great deal that's said in Scripture that speaks of us as followers of Jesus Christ, not only knowing the reality of suffering, but even seeing it as something to embrace when it is for the sake of the gospel and the name of Jesus Christ. And the preparation for that kind of suffering must begin where it always does for us, and that is by looking to Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you would turn to John chapter 18, this passage as we get back into the gospel of John, it's been a little while, but we're going to finish the gospel of John up over the course of the next six weeks or so. Um, the passage in particular this morning, we are seeing our Savior willingly walking directly into the teeth of agonizing suffering and doing so in obedience to the will of his Father. Our observation of Jesus walking toward his betrayal, his arrest, the unjust trial, the beatings that go on after that, and then ultimately the crucifixion on the cross, should move us to worship. It, it should encourage us to see in our Savior Him giving His life for sinners like you and I to redeem a people for God. We are witnessing the glory of God on display as the Son of God sacrifices Himself for sinners. But there's something else, too, that the Apostle Peter, who figures pretty prominently into the account we're going to see this morning, Peter says there's something else that as we watch the suffering of Christ over the course of this week and the next couple of weeks, as, as we move toward the cross and see Christ on the cross, as we see him suffering, Peter says there's something else we should be taking from this. And he says it in 1 Peter 2.21, and he's talking specifically there in 1 Peter about believers suffering unjustly, believers being treated severely. And he says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That is, that is a profound and convicting preface to help us in our thinking as we approach John 18 and the, the chapters that follow. As we begin to look at the betrayal, the arrest, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we stand in awe of his glory and we worship. But Peter says there's something else to see here. As you look at the suffering of Christ, don't merely look at it as, as just a worshiper, even though that's important, don't look at it in any kind of detached way because in reality, Peter's saying, look at it because you are called to this. You as a follower of Jesus Christ should see in the suffering of Christ an example to follow in his steps. So let's begin just the first three verses to start with in John chapter 18. It says, when Jesus 
had spoken these words. This is the night before his crucifixion. He's been with his disciples for this evening. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is the night on which Jesus has been teaching his disciples. He has been preparing them for what is to come. He has instituted what we call the Lord's Supper and that, that communion meal as part of this preparation for Passover. They're now walking out of the city of Jerusalem and they're going to the east. And there is this, what at this time of year is probably a dry stream bed, the, the Kidron, that couple months out of the year is the rainy season when it fills up, but they cross that and they go up to the hillside toward the Mount of Olives. And along that hillside is this area, this garden as it's described, probably some privately owned olive grove that, that they know, the disciples know, someone that allows Jesus to use this, and they go there. And this has been his habit. Verse 2 says that they've gone there often. Jesus often met with his disciples in this place. Um, we know, in fact, from Luke chapter 21, as he recounts that final week of the life of Jesus, that, that during each of those days after the arrival into Jerusalem, Jesus spent the daytime preaching in the temple court, preaching there in Jerusalem to these massive crowds that have gathered for Passover. He preaches during the day, and then Luke says, at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. So this has been his pattern day after day during the course of this week. Judas knew this. He knew Jesus' routine, and so he uses it to his benefit. And Luke 22, 6 says that Judas went to the chief priests, and he was able to get money for providing to them the location where they could find Jesus, where Judas, knowing all of this routine, knowing where this sort of quieter place would be outside of the city walls, is able to now get paid to betray Jesus, as Luke says, in the absence of a crowd. That, that is the key to all of this for the Jewish leaders at this point, is they've got Jesus in their midst. He's come back to Jerusalem. The only problem is he has come back at this peak time on the Jewish calendar when there are these enormous crowds and, and to try to arrest him while he's teaching at the temple is not going to work. And so they need somewhere to get him in the absence of a crowd. And so that's what Judas provides for them. Verse 3, as we saw, says that that the arresting party then was made up of officers of the Jewish priests, as well as a band of soldiers, it says. The language there for band of soldiers has the idea of this, this is like a cohort of Roman soldiers. This could be a number, depending on the Greek word, anywhere from 600 is what it would normally mean, but it could be from 200 to 1,000. John doesn't give us the indication of perhaps sort of the, the massive outpouring, but it would seem like there were a lot of Roman soldiers in this, perhaps 100 or more Roman soldiers who go along with the Jewish officers. There is a, a large group, and as John describes, they are armed and they are ready. We know, again, from history that a lot of Roman soldiers were stationed in Jerusalem during the Passover week. They were there for crowd control. They were there because there was this massive influx of people who came from all over the known world, of Jews who came to, to worship there to carry out the, the, the Passover exercises that they did. And so 
it, it, it's no question that the Romans would have been sympathetic to helping the Jews, not so much at this point in necessarily getting Jesus, but if this is what the Jewish priests were going to do, they wanted to make sure it was at least done right, that it was done without any kind of uproar, any kind of mob violence, and so they were very sympathetic to the notion that, okay, we will go with you at night, and we will make sure that this is handled well. This is, this is kind of like the police department calling out the SWAT team to go and arrest the dangerous suspect. We know where he is. We're not going to go just knock on the door for this guy. This one is really dangerous, and so we're calling in everyone. And so the description here is they are armed. They have torches. They are prepared because they are going out to the hillside. And, and, and the, the great fear at this moment is as they approach, Jesus flees and starts going up into this olive grove and up on the hillside, and they are prepared to light up the night now in order to find Jesus. So verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Pause there. It's a verse I just want you to, to ponder on for just a moment. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, steps forward toward the arresting party and says, Whom do you seek? In these next Today and the, the five weeks that follow, these next six weeks altogether, we are going to be seeing the climax of what John has been bringing us to. This is the, the conclusion of the Gospel of John. And this started in chapter 1 with John boldly declaring that what he was going to write about was nothing less than God stepping out of heaven, clothing himself in flesh, to come and dwell among humanity in order that he might redeem a people for himself. John sets out in chapter 1 and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he, he wants to say to us right from the beginning, This is amazing. Watch this. And he says, in fact, in John 1.14, And the Word, that is Jesus, that is the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how John starts this gospel. He's saying to his readers, we have seen the glory of God in this man, Jesus Christ. And we are now wanting you, as, as, as he writes this account, he's saying, I want you to see this. I want you, when you look at Jesus Christ, to not see some mere rabbi, some historic figure, some good teacher. I want you to see the glory of God in flesh in Jesus Christ. And the whole idea of glory now becomes this theme that runs through the Gospel of John. So much so that the first miracle Jesus does in chapter 2 is the turning of the water into wine. And John 2.11 says... This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his what? His glory. Yeah, so right away, first miracle. Is it, to, it, it displays Jesus' power, displays Jesus' ability to turn water into wine, to do that which is supernatural. John says, look at this. This is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When he does that, it manifests his glory. And so Jesus, on the night when he is betrayed, in John 17, prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. A few verses later in chapter 17, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
been a little while since we were in John chapter 17. It's been a few months, as a matter of fact, since we broke off from John 17. So just a, a quick refresher on these words glory and glorify, because this becomes just John's central focus at this point. Those words glory and glorify in, in, in the Greek language come from a word that meant to ponder something for the purpose of giving an opinion about it. Consider it so that you might interpret it, form an opinion about it. We do that all the time. We interpret the things that we see. We look at them and we form values and we make judgments based on how we interpret the things that we see around us. So the Greek noun for glory really had the idea originally of to give an opinion, to say, this is what I declare about this. Well, by the time the New Testament writers use this, they are adapting that word to match what was the Hebrew Old Testament word for glory, and that word has more of the sense of abundance and honor. So in other words, we talk about glory, we're talking about not just a mere opinion, we're talking about something that expresses just a fullness of opinion, an abundance about the, the thing in which we are speaking. And so when the, the writers in Scripture use glory, they are not merely speaking of a high opinion. They are talking about the singularly great opinion that we must have of our Creator God, who alone is infinitely glorious, who in all of His attributes is perfect. And so everything that we offer in our understanding of God is to elevate his glory. It is to speak of his perfection. He is good to the fullest measure. God is, as Psalm 24 says, the king of glory. He is the most glorious one of all because he is good to perfection. He is kind. He is just. All of the attributes of God to perfection. He lacks nothing. And so... John is, has been like a guide, if you will, who from the very beginning is sort of this energetic, passionate guide. Have you ever had one of them that's taken you on a tour somewhere of D.C. or some other place, and, and you can tell when you've got a guide who's just really enthusiastic, and they can't wait for you to see something, and they're just full of information about that. This is what John is. John has been since chapter 1 saying, we saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ we want you to see it. I'm going to tell you these things about Jesus so that you will, you will see through our eyes and through these words, through the Holy Spirit's work here now in giving us this scripture, so that you will see in Jesus the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So when John summarizes his book in chapter 20 and says the purpose of his gospel is these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. I've written this, he says, so that you see Jesus. And that in Jesus you see the Savior. In Jesus you see the majesty of God. And so I say all that because now when we come to chapter 18, 19, and we see Jesus being betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified. Even here, in the suffering of our Savior, we are seeing the majestic glory of God. We are seeing one suffer as no one else did. One who did not deserve any of what he received. Who suffers even then perfectly 
as he bears the wrath of God. His glory is on full display in the face of betrayal and brutal beatings and unjust trials and ultimately bearing the wrath of God in his body against our sin that's been placed on him. In all of that, even in his abundant and forgiving love that comes at the end of this gospel when he will restore Peter, we are seeing God. We are seeing God's glory through Jesus Christ. And that's what John keeps telling us. Look and see this. So over these next six weeks, we've taken this sort of a mini-series, if you will, and that's why the signs say our glorious Savior. That's really what we're trying to focus in on is just the glory of Jesus Christ and some aspects of that that we're going to see over these weeks. And I would submit to you this morning that we are going to see the remarkable courage of our glorious Savior. Let me sort of classify that, if you will. Courage not because he's personally a brave man, courage that is rooted in his commitment to do the will of his Father. It is a boldness and a walking into suffering courage that is rooted in the fact that he is now delivering himself to do the will of his Father. Jesus Christ gives himself, and that's what we've seen already in this passage, particularly in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen, walks forward. This goes back to John chapter 10, where Jesus stated his authority and said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is Jesus not being defeated by circumstances, not being caught in something trap or something set by Judas and the priest. This is Jesus in full control. And it starts with, on that night, Jesus sending Judas off to go and carry out his business and then going to the exact place where he knew Judas would find him. If, that, or if that's you and I in that moment and we are playing some kind of game with somebody, and, and so we send them off. We, we go and hide in some other place where we, we think they won't find us. Jesus sends Judas to carry out the betrayal and goes to the very place he's gone night after night after night, knowing full well that that's exactly where Judas will bring the arresters to come and to find him. He is in complete control, and he steps toward them. Verse 4, again, knowing all that would happen, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, and this is really just I am. Your ESV says I am he. The language in the Greek is I am. Ego eimi. Jesus said I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Isn't that a remarkable scene? Here is Jesus before this armed arresting party, not only not stepping back at all from them, as you and I might be inclined to do in that situation, but stepping toward them. And saying, whom do you seek? And in his answer, it should sound familiar to us. When Jesus said to them, I am, 
We have seen that repeatedly in the Gospel of John. At times, he has, he has gone a step further and said, I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. There have been statements like that, but there have also been times when Jesus has merely said, I am, as he's walking out on the water in John chapter 6, and the disciples are terrified in the midst of the storm. And Jesus says that I am. It is his power over the storm. It is the power of God. His enemies understood what he was saying by that because in John chapter 8, we remember the instance where, where they, are, they are pushing for Jesus to somehow identify himself in some way that they would define as blasphemous. And Jesus indeed says to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. And it says they picked up stones to try to kill him because they understood what he was saying in that moment. Abraham was millennia ago. How could you possibly be before Abraham unless you're claiming to be pre-existent, eternal God now here in flesh? And thus they, they de declared blasphemy and they were determined to kill him. Just hours earlier in John 13, Jesus had said to his disciples, I'm telling you some of what's going to unfold tonight. I'm, I'm letting you know what's going to happen. He said, so that before it takes place, that when it does, you will believe that I am. I'm telling you I'm going to be betrayed. One of you will do it. Peter, you will deny me that I will be crucified. And I'm telling you that now so that when it happens, you will stop and go, I am. Jesus said this. This is exactly who he is. I am is not some mere self-identification to the arresting party. That's why we sort of miss it a little bit with the I am he. This wasn't Jesus simply saying, yeah, I'm the guy. This is Jesus declaring in power that he is God in flesh to all who will believe in that moment. I am. And the response of the arresters tells us all that we need to know about this. Here is, oddly enough at this moment, the guy that they've all come for, that they've armed for, that they're prepared to take in, now says, I am. And in that moment when they should say, all right, take him, what happens? Instead, it says they step back from him, and clearly the ones in the front are stepping back quickest from him, and they begin to fall over each other, and it says that they all just stumble down. What a remarkable scene this is, of, of John again saying, look, you want to see the glory of God? Watch this. Here comes Jesus saying, yep, who are you looking for? Walking right at them. And they ask, and he says, I am, and they fall back. It's like they don't know what to do in his presence. So Jesus, again, repeats it. One commentator writes, Jesus struck the multitude like a flash of lightning. This is the one who speaks with unrivaled power, the one whose words, Scripture says, are sharper than a two-edged sword. This is the one who, who changes lives, who is God in flesh, and he is standing, one man, before brave troops armed with weapons. These, these are not bumbling keystone cops. These were Rome's finest, and they are armed and prepared, and they know their mission is to simply arrest this one man. He is doing nothing to threaten them in any way, and they fall back. They have, they have beheld the glory of God, and his intent here is clear, and he makes it clear. It, it, his purpose is not only to display his glory, but his intent here is, is to preserve his disciples. Even knowing what would happen and knowing, because he had said this to them earlier in the night, you all will scatter, knowing that they are all going to scatter, Jesus' primary concern in that moment 
is to be the shepherd who protects his sheep. And so he repeats himself to the arresters and says, I'm the one you want. Let these go. And the good shepherd is again looking after his sheep exactly, and John recites it for us, exactly as he had said in John 17, I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas. Let's read on. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Even as Jesus is surrendering himself to do the will of his Father, here is Peter. One more moment of, of trying to do something, trying to take something on himself at this moment. And so he draws a sword and he strikes the priest's servant. And what does Jesus do? Luke tells us that Jesus touches Malchus's ear and heals it. No doubt protecting Peter in doing that. There's no more assault charge against Peter when there's no more evidence of an assault at that point. Malchus has been healed. And so he's even there protecting Malchus. And Matthew adds that in rebuking Peter, Jesus said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? There's Peter with his sword. And Jesus saying, Peter, really? I mean, do you honestly think that I need help in this moment? I can call down angels, and we can take care of this in a heartbeat. But Jesus Christ said to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He is proceeding forward to do the will of his Father, which is to bear the wrath, the just wrath of God against sinners. Verse 12, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest this year. Annas had been high priest before, sort of retains the title, but Caiaphas is the, cur Caiaphas is the current one. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Look down at verse 19. We'll skip over a section here and come back to it. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples, this being Annas, still bearing the title. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoke openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We're not going to cover all of the, the Jewish phase of, of the trials. Next week, uh, we'll go into the trial before Pilate. Um, but there seem to be three phases, essentially, to the, the Jewish portion of trying Jesus. This first sort of hearing that that. Um, John describes for us, that is before Annas, the hearing that follows that he does not record, but that Matthew 26 does, is before Caiaphas, who is then the current high priest. And this is the sort of mockery of a trial where they bring in false witnesses with conflicting testimony, and all that trial does is it serves to prove the innocence of Jesus. And the only way that there's ever a conviction is in the end of that when Caiaphas finally says to Jesus, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus says, you have said so. 
And Jesus is declaring that, yes, you, the, the priest of the Jews, is now saying one thing that is right and true, that I am that one. And at that moment, Caiaphas declares that there is blasphemy and that Jesus is worthy of death. And the, the final phase then would be in the morning, the third phase, when they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council at that point, to simply confirm what it is that, that Caiaphas had determined. But the other thing that we, we just see here in, in these hearings, these trials, is that they were a mockery of God's law. Everything that goes on here is contrary to God's law in the terms of Jesus being able to have time for a defense and bring witnesses and all of the, the simple realities of how this sort of death penalty case should have been tried. And the reason for all that John has already told us is because Caiaphas had predetermined the outcome of this months before after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Back in John chapter 11, when Lazarus is raised, and all of a sudden even more people are starting to follow Jesus, that's when Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders get together and say, we got a problem here. Because if he continues to gain fame, Rome is going to crush us. We're going to be destroyed as a nation. We're going to lose our influence and leadership. And so, indeed, as, as John records Caiaphas saying back in verse 14, he advised it's better that this guy die. It's more expedient for the country that one man die for the nation. And as, as John has told us back in chapter 11, Caiaphas is speaking just prophetic truth at that point, not, not knowing it at that moment, what he's actually saying, that a savior must give his life as a ransom for sinners. But Caiaphas simply sees this as a political expediency. We've got to get rid of this guy, and we've got to do it quickly. And so Jesus, when he answers the, the portion we read here in 19 to, to 24... When, when the officer strikes Jesus, essentially what's happening here is, is they're questioning Jesus about his teaching and his disciples, and Jesus is saying, what, what part of what I've done over the last two or three years are you not familiar with because I've preached to the world? I've spoken wherever I can. I've spoken in synagogues. I've spent all this week again, and as I've done before, out in the court of the temple preaching this truth. There's been nothing secret there's been nothing that hasn't been out there on display to the point that he has, he has told them, I am, that he is indeed the one that they are accusing of blasphemy because they know what he's claiming. He's claiming to be the son of God, God in flesh. And, and when, so when he says that then at, at, at this point to, to Caiaphas, well, why are you doing this? And the officer strikes him. It's because the officer perceives that Jesus is, is actually pointing out the cowardice and hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders at this moment. You're asking me questions when you already know the answers. Everyone knows the answers because I've not contradicted myself. I've spoken truth and I've done it publicly time after time after time. So what part of that don't you get? And that's when the, the officer smacks him. And even then, Jesus' response to that is to stand for truth and say, I've done nothing wrong. Why, why do that when I've done nothing wrong? This is not a moment for turning the other cheek. And the reason is because what's at issue here is the identification of Jesus Christ. What's at issue here is the fundamental point that Jesus has been making from the beginning, that John has been making from the beginning of the gospel, and that is, is this man who stands before you who he claims to be? Because he claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. And he does that without question. He makes that very clear. And so if there's going to be any issue here of, of oh, maybe there's some other story here, maybe we need to get more to this, that's why Jesus speaks up as he does. And that's why, again, even when he struck, 
he stands up for truth and says, tell, tell me what I've said that's wrong. And there's nothing at that point. Annas then has him bound and he sends him off to Caiaphas. While all this was happening, we know that there's some parts about Peter that we've read, skipped over, so let's do those. Verse 12, uh, verse 15, excuse me, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Drop down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The contrast that John is seeking to draw here is as stark as can be. This isn't, this isn't merely about, this isn't about John trying to make Peter look bad. This is John doing two things. In, in his description of this account with Peter. One is he's setting the stage for when we get to chapter 21 and Jesus will restore Peter and he will put Peter back into ministry and it is a tremendous act of love for what we see here and what we know Jesus witnessed of Peter's denials. We will see all of that in the loving grace of Jesus Christ put aside and Peter restored. But the other thing that, that's happening here is to set the contrast for us. It's to set the contrast between the Savior who is knowingly, willingly moving toward suffering, who is, who is with every step standing for truth that will take him right to his execution. There is no hint of hesitation or weakness on the part of Jesus. Even when he's struck, he still brings it back to a matter of truth. What have I said here that, that, that you disagree with? Prove me wrong. And contrasted against that is Peter, who hours earlier had been warned that despite his claims of bravery, his promises to always stand with Jesus and be with Jesus and, and all of the things Peter said, Jesus had said to him, Peter, all of that bravery will melt into three denials before the morning even comes. Three times you will say, you, you deny me. What's interesting about each of these denials, and you may have noticed it in the language, is the person that's questioning Peter does so tentatively. You notice how they all say, you're not one of those. In the Greek, the little particle for not is first in all of these to make the point that in all of these, it's not like the accusers are, are, are pointing a finger in Peter's face and saying, hey, you're one of those guys. They're all sort of passively, kind of shyly saying, hey, you're not one of those. Disciples, are you that, that you know, we've seen with Jesus? You're, you're not the guy who was also out there in the garden, are you? And so in each of these instances, it, it's, it's not like he's, he's being prosecuted. It's sort of innocent questions, sort of curious questions about him, and, and also questions that provide a way out. You and I know this if, if we're in a situation where we're being less than honest and somebody sort of gives a way out like, you didn't do that, did you? 
you didn't take that, did you? And, and if they say didn't, you know, you didn't, and they're sort of assuming the negative, it feels easier at that point to go, mm, you know, like, like you said, right? And that's what Peter does. He just sort of takes the easy way out on all these. You're not, no. And the interesting thing, too, is verse 16 says there's another disciple there throughout this, the other disciple who was known to the high priest. It's possible this is John. This, this servant spoke to the servant girl. John, sometimes when he places himself in the story, does not identify himself. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This, it could be John, because John, we know from back in verse 10, knew the name of the servant whose ear was cut off. So it's possible it's John. It's possible it's maybe a follower of Jesus Christ who is from there in Jerusalem who is unknown to us. Either way, the point is this. When the, the servant girl says to Peter... I know this, this other guy is. Are you another one? She's not at that moment really, she's not saying anything negative about the other guy. There's no accusation here. It's like, aren't, aren't you one too? I mean, he's, he's not alone in all of this. There's an opportunity to sort of team up and, and maybe capture a little bravery from that. And instead, even in that moment, brash, quick to speak, always claim allegiance to Jesus, Peter says, uh, no, not me. And given time, to correct that and to think about that, Peter still denies Jesus two more times. It is meant for us to not only set us up for chapter 21, but to be a stunning contrast between Jesus, who continues to walk toward this, and Peter, who is finding ways to extract himself from the situation as much as possible, starting to, to sense the danger of what's happening here and trying to get himself out. Luke adds the final painful element that John leaves out, and that is after the third denial, the rooster crows, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered what the Lord said and went out and wept bitterly. It's hard to fathom a moment like that, isn't it? Somehow in the transport of Jesus, he is, he's able to see Peter there before the others and witness that third denial. And Peter, in that moment, Everything floods back, and he runs into the night just weeping at what he's done. His denials will ultimately make the Lord's words in chapter 21 all the more profound, all the more gracious, all the more wonderful. But what they're intending to do here is to make us see the greatness of the Savior, who does not pull back, who does not get cowardly or hesitate at any moment because he is doing the will of his father. And as Peter would write to us years later, exactly the verse that we started this with in 1 Peter 2, that willing movement by Jesus toward the cross, toward suffering in our place, toward bearing our sin, toward the wrath of God, not only is to do the will of the Father, but it is to leave an example to you and I to follow in his steps. We are learning here the what to do and the what not to do, if you will, because Jesus is giving us an example of what it means to follow him and to suffer. Just flip, and we'll just go for just a couple minutes. 2 Timothy chapter 1 at the end of the New Testament. I just want to finish in 2 Timothy 1 and, and just have you think with me for a moment on this idea of boldness for the sake of Christ right near the end of the New Testament, 2 Timothy 1. Paul writes 2 Timothy from jail, probably in Rome, probably his last letter. He's been arrested. It's not good. 
He's nearing his own execution. Paul is very much aware that the end is in sight, and so he's writing this letter to the young man that he has mentored, to the guy that God has given him and God has raised up and empowered to be the one that will carry on from what Paul has been teaching him. And after starting the letter by speaking of his longing to see Timothy, look at what Paul writes in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I think this is where the example that Peter speaks of, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. The example of Jesus in his suffering intersects with you and I in our everyday lives. Commentators, as they try to describe what we know about Timothy, tend to say, oh, this is a guy who probably had some fear of man issues. Timothy sometimes comes across at least the appearance in these letters as maybe being a little more timid. And so Paul is sort of speaking into his life very intentionally at this point to that idea of, Timothy, we, we don't have a spirit of fear, dude. Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to suffer. And he's speaking to that. But, but listen, I, the truth is, all of us understand the fear of man, don't we? I mean, all of us, we can look at Peter's denials, and, and we don't, we don't actually find it all that hard to understand, do we, Peter, in that moment, what he's doing and what's going on in his heart? We don't, we don't really, when it comes right down to it, struggle to understand how Timothy could, could knowing where he was now. Timothy had traveled with Paul and had watched Paul be arrested and beaten and imprisoned and had rocks thrown at him and had been whipped and tortured, and, and Timothy had watched all this, and now Timothy is being called... You, I'm leaving, you're going. You're going back to these churches. I mean, is it really, it's not that hard, is it, for us to understand Timothy at this point going, this is, this can be a fearful thing. We can relate to this, can't we? I mean, when a conversation amongst peers turns to religion, we're sort of thinking about what we should bring to the table in that moment. And we should be bringing Jesus Christ and the gospel because we know the truth and we know that these people who are talking about these other things that have nothing to do with the gospel are wrong and they're misguided and they need the gospel and there's that, that temptation. Do I, do I speak up? Have you ever been afraid to object when your friends or your colleagues were saying things or going places or doing things that you're thinking as a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, I shouldn't be participating in this, I shouldn't be going there, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be acting as if this is okay and somehow say, saying that this is, this is okay by my unwillingness to speak up? Like Peter, have you ever taken the easy way out? 
just taking the, the simple path and avoid the conversation because she thought, I, I don't really want to be ridiculed. I don't want them to think differently. I don't want to be mocked in this situation. I mean, maybe you've never flat out denied Jesus, but do you remember those times when you, you didn't gladly, willingly identify with Jesus either? I mean, listen, I, I, can, I can check all of those boxes. And what Paul wrote here when he urges courage and boldness for the sake of the gospel is not, listen, you got to be more of an extrovert, Timothy. you got to be a bolder guy, Timothy. No. He, he's taking it all back to the gospel and the suffering of Jesus Christ. He keeps tying it back to the work of Jesus Christ and the fact that he's willing to suffer for that. And so in 2 Timothy, he will speak often about his suffering, but not in the sense of bemoaning it or whining about it, complaining about it. He, he is talking about suffering as one who now at the end is saying, you know what? I got to suffer for Christ. I got to suffer for the sake of the gospel. The reason that Jesus could walk toward his own betrayal and execution is because he was resting in the will of the Father. And, and so too Paul's message here is, if you are resting in the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, what actually can man do to you? Because look at what he's already done. I mean, he's, he says it there at the, the end of that passage we read, that this gospel has been made manifest through the appearing of our Savior who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's why he then says in verse 12, which is why I suffer. Because he's saying to Timothy, listen, what, what can they do to you, man? I mean, in the end, if you are clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ... They can take it all away from you, and you still rest in him. Think about what Jesus has already done. If you believe that he died for your sins, if this morning you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you believe that you are a sinner and that Jesus Christ on the cross took your sins and bore God's just wrath against your sins and now has given you forgiveness and eternal life, then for you, Jesus Christ has abolished death. And he has promised a resurrection of life into his presence for eternity to see his glory. We should be his disciples and be bold about that. That's what Paul says in verse 12. That's why I suffer. Paul says, I, it's not, I didn't suffer so that I could be a martyr, so you could all go, oh, look at Paul. What an amazing life. He says, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a hero. I'm just not ashamed of this gospel because I know there's nothing man can do to me. Because I believe this gospel and I know whom I believed in and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've entrusted to him. I, I, I believe that with all my heart. So what can man do? I know who I've put my trust in. God will keep me safe in this life for as long as he is using me here on earth. And when that day finally ends, when God perhaps pulls back that protection and allows me to move on from here... I will stand in his glory for eternity and be in his presence. And that's Paul's point. Because then, then you go before a Savior and there's no more suffering or tears or sin anymore. Jesus Christ had full confidence to obey his Father and to step toward the injustice of man's evil. Because as Peter says in the same passage where we read earlier about an example, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Jesus Christ ultimately endures the, the sinful, evil, injustice, and, and terror of man because he is entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. Ultimately, it's God who is in control of this, and I am seeking to do the Father's will. As believers in Jesus Christ, as we go through this next couple of weeks, this passage right up through the cross, we should be in awe and worship. But I would also encourage you that we should be looking at this as an example. Not just as, you know, if, if suffering comes my way, because the New Testament says it too often. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we should expect suffering. In fact, we should be willing to walk toward suffering. That is for the sake of the gospel and for the fame of Jesus Christ, following the example that he has set. May God give us grace and help us to not be ashamed of his gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the glorious Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that in his going to the cross and experiencing judgment against sin, it is our sin. It is our shame. It is our deeds and words and thoughts that were placed on him that he would bear the punishment for them to give to us a right standing before you. Thank you that through Jesus Christ we have that. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, who is stopped at that fundamental point of why Christ died and rose again, I pray that today you would open their eyes to see that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not meant to be some mere moral example, but that it was actual God in flesh providing the means to save sinners from the just wrath of God that we deserve. May you today lead them to believe in Jesus and to call on his name and trust in him. And Father, for, for my brothers and sisters and I, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit's work in us, grant us boldness as we engage with the world, as there are opportunities to live and speak for Christ and for the gospel. God, do not, do not allow us to be shamed. Call us to, to the truth that we believe and know. Thank you for reminding us again that there is light and immortality, the light of life and immortality that has been brought to bear by the gospel, that we have a hope that goes far beyond the mockings, the insults, the trials that we may face for the name of Jesus Christ. And one day we will stand before the one whose hands and feet were pierced and who bled for us and died. Help us to not be ashamed, but to live boldly as people who are following in the steps of our Savior, in whose name we pray.